this promiscuous chopping makes it possible to use Cas-13 with fluorescent reporters, as was done with Cas-12, to be a detection tool for a specified RNA sequence, such as that of a coronavirus. Zhang and his colleagues at the Broad were able to create such a detection tool in April 2017, which they named Specific High Sensitivity Enzymatic Reporter Unlocking, which was reverse-engineered, though not very well, to produce the acronym SHERLOCK. The game was afoot. They showed that Sherlock could detect specific strains of Zika and Dengue viruses. Over the next year, they made a version that combined Cas-13 and Cas-12 to detect multiple targets in one reaction. Then they were able to simplify the system and make it possible for the detection to be reported on paper lateral flow strips, similar to pregnancy tests. Jung decided to start a diagnostics company to commercialize Sherlock, just like Chen and Harrington had launched Mammoth. Jung's co-founders included the two graduate students, who were the lead authors on many of the papers from his lab, describing CRISPR-Cas13. Omar Abudeya and Jonathan Gutenberg. Gutenberg recalls that they almost decided not to publish a paper when they first discovered the tendency of Cas13 to go into a frenzy of indiscriminate RNA cutting. It seemed like a useless quirk of nature. But once Jung figured out how to harness that quirk to create a virus detection technology, Gutenberg realized how discoveries in basic science can turn out to have unexpected real-world applications. You know, nature's got a ton of amazing secrets in it, he says. It took a while to get Sherlock Biosciences funded and launched, because Jung and his two graduate students did not want profit to be the main goal of the company. They wanted the technologies to be affordable in the developing world. So the company was structured in a way that allowed it to profit on its innovations while still taking a non-profit approach in places where there was great need. Unlike the Doudna Jung competition for the patents, the one involving diagnostic companies was not very contentious. Both sides knew that the technologies had enormous potential to do good. Whenever there was a new epidemic, Mammoth and Sherlock could quickly reprogram their diagnostic tools to target the novel virus and produce testing kits. The Broad team, for example, sent a team with Sherlock to Nigeria in 2019 to help detect victims of an outbreak of Lassa fever, a virus in the same family as Ebola. At the time, using CRISPR as a diagnostic tool seemed to be a worthy endeavor, though not a particularly exciting one. It did not get as much buzz as using CRISPR to treat diseases or edit human genes. But then, at the beginning of 2020, the world suddenly changed. The ability to quickly detect an attacking virus became critical. And the best way to do it faster and cheaper than the conventional PCR tests, which required a lot of mixing steps and temperature cycles, was to deploy RNA-guided enzymes that had been programmed to detect the genetic material of the virus. In other words, adapt the CRISPR system that bacteria had been deploying for millions of years. Chapter 52. 
Coronavirus tests. Feng Zhang. In early January 2020, Feng Zhang started getting emails about coronavirus written in Chinese. Some were from Chinese academics he had met, but he also got an unexpected one from the science officer at China's consulate in New York City. Even though you are an American and not living in China, it said. This is really a problem that's important for humanity. It quoted an old Chinese saying, "When one place is in trouble, assistance comes from all quarters." So we hope that you can think about it and see what you can do. The email urged. Zhang knew little about the novel coronavirus, other than what he had read in a New York Times article describing the situation in Wuhan, but the emails. Gave me a sense of urgency about the situation, he says. This was especially true of the exchange he had with the Chinese consulate. I usually don't have any interactions from them, says Zhang, who had immigrated to Iowa with his parents when he was eleven. I asked him whether Chinese authorities think of him as a Chinese scientist. Yeah, probably, he says after a pause. I think they probably think of all Chinese people as Chinese, but that's irrelevant because the world is so connected now, especially in a pandemic. Zhang decided to reconfigure the Sherlock detection tool so that it could test for the new coronavirus. Unfortunately, he didn't have anyone in his lab to handle the necessary experiments, so he resolved to go to his bench and do the experiments himself. He also enlisted his two former graduate students, Omar Abudeya and Jonathan Gutenberg. They had moved on to open their own lab at MIT's McGovern Institute, a block from the Broad, and they agreed to collaborate with him again. Zhang did not initially have access to samples of the coronavirus from human patients, so he made a synthetic version of it. Using the Sherlock process, he and his team devised a detection test. That took only three steps and could be done in an hour without fancy equipment. All it required was a small device to keep the temperature constant, while the genetic material from the samples was amplified through a chemical process that was simpler than PCR. The results could be read using a paper dipstick. On February 14th, well before most of the U.S. had focused on the novel coronavirus. Jung's lab posted a white paper describing the test and inviting any lab to use or adapt the process freely. Today, we are sharing a research protocol for Sherlock-based COVID-19 hashtag coronavirus detection, and hope it will help others who are working to combat the outbreak. Jung tweeted, "We will continue to update this as we make further progress." The company he had founded. Sherlock Biosciences quickly began work on turning the process into a commercial testing device that could be used in hospitals and doctors' offices. When the CEO Rahul Danda told his team that he wanted the company to focus on COVID, the researchers literally swung their chairs back to their workbenches to take on the mission. When we say a pivot, There was a literal pivot of chairs at the same time. There was a pivot of the company towards a new goal, he says. By the end of 2020, the company was working with manufacturing partners to turn out small machines that could be used to get results in less than an hour.
Chen and Harrington. Around the time that Zheng began working on his coronavirus test, Janice Chung got a call from a researcher on the scientific advisory board of the company she had founded with Doudna and Lucas Harrington, Mammoth Biosciences. What do you think about developing a CRISPR-based diagnostic to detect the SARS-CoV-2 virus, he asked. She agreed that they should try. As a result, she and Harrington became part of yet another cross-country competition between Doudna's circle and Jung's. Within two weeks, the Mammoth team was able to reconfigure its CRISPR-based detector tool so that it would detect SARS-CoV-2. One benefit of collaborating with UC San Francisco, which has its own hospital, was that they could test on real human samples, drawn from 36 COVID patients, unlike the Broad, which initially had to use synthetic viruses. The Mammoth test relied on the CRISPR-associated enzyme that Chen and Harrington had studied in Doudna's lab, Cas12, which targets DNA. That would seem to make it less suited than Sherlock's Cas13, which targets RNA, the genetic material of the coronavirus. However, both detection techniques need to convert the RNA of the coronavirus into DNA in order for it to be amplified. In the Sherlock test, it has to be transcribed back into RNA to be detected, thus adding a small step to the process. Chen and Harrington rushed to get a white paper online with the details of their mammoth test. In many ways, it was similar to the Sherlock process. All that was necessary was a heating block, the reagents, and paper flow strips to give a readout of the results. Like Zheng, the mammoth team decided to put what they had devised into the public domain to be shared freely. On February 14th, while they were preparing to put their white paper online, Chen and Harrington saw a message pop up on the Slack channel they were using. Someone posted the tweet that Jung had just sent out, announcing that he had just published his white paper on how to use the Sherlock protocol for detecting the coronavirus. We were like, oh shoot, Chen recalls of that Friday afternoon. But after a few minutes, they realized that having both papers appear was a good thing, they appended a postscript to the paper they were just about to post. While we were preparing this white paper, another protocol for SARS-CoV-2 detection using CRISPR diagnostics, Sherlock V20200214, was published, it said. They then included a useful chart comparing the workflows of the two techniques. Jung was gracious, though it was easy for him to be, since he had beaten the Mammoth team by a day. Check out the resource provided by Mammoth, he tweeted, including a link to its white paper. Glad that scientists are working together and sharing openly. Hashtag coronavirus. That tweet reflected a welcome new trend in the CRISPR world. The passionate competition for patents and prizes had led to secrecy about research and the formation of competing CRISPR companies but the urgency that Doudna and Zheng and their colleagues felt about defeating the coronavirus pushed them to be more open and willing to share their work. Competition was still an important and useful part of the equation. There continued to be a race between Doudna's world and Zheng's 
to publish papers and make advances on the new COVID tests. I'm not going to sugarcoat it, Doudna says. There's definitely competition going on. It makes people feel an urgency to move ahead, or if they don't, other people are going to get to something first. But coronavirus made the rivalry less cutthroat, because patents were not a paramount concern. The awesomely good thing about this terrible situation is that all the intellectual property questions have been put aside, and everyone's really intent on just finding solutions, says Chen. People are focused on getting something out there that works, rather than on the business aspect of it. At-home tests. The CRISPR-based tests developed by Mammoth and Sherlock are cheaper and faster than conventional PCR tests. They also have an advantage over antigen tests, such as the one developed by Abbott Labs that was approved in August of the plague year. The CRISPR-based tests can detect the presence of the RNA of a virus as soon as a person has been infected. But the antigen tests, which detect the presence of proteins that exist on the surface of the virus, are most accurate only after a patient has become highly infectious to others. The ultimate goal for all of these methods was to create a CRISPR-based coronavirus test that would be like a home pregnancy test, cheap, disposable, fast, and simple, which you could buy at the corner drugstore and use in the privacy of your bathroom. Harrington and Chen of the Mammoth team unveiled their concept for such a device in May 2020 and announced a partnership with the London-based multinational pharmaceutical company GlaxoSmithKline, maker of Excedrin and Tums, to manufacture it. It would provide accurate results in 20 minutes and require no special equipment. Likewise, Jung's lab that same month developed a way to simplify the Sherlock detection system, which originally required two steps, into a process that required just a single-step reaction. The only equipment necessary was a pot to keep the system heated at a steady 140 degrees Fahrenheit. Jung named it STOP, for Sherlock testing in one pot. Let me show you what it will look like, Jung says to me with his boyish enthusiasm, as he shares slides and renderings on a Zoom call. You just put a nasal or saliva sample into this cartridge, slide it into the device, Break one blister to release a solution that will extract the virus RNA, and then break another blister that will release some freeze-dried CRISPR for a reaction in the amplification chamber. Jung named the device Stop COVID, but the platform can be easily adapted to detect any virus. That's why we chose the Stop name, which can be paired with any target, he says. We could create a Stop Flu or to stop HIV, or have many detection targets on the same platform. The device is agnostic about what virus it's looking for. Mammoth has the same vision of making it easy to reprogram its own tool to detect any new virus that comes along. The beauty of CRISPR is that once you have the platform, then it's just a matter of reconfiguring your chemistry to detect a different virus, Chen explains. It can be used for the next pandemic, or any virus. It can also be used against any bacteria, or anything that has a genetic sequence, 
even cancer. Biology hits home. The development of home testing kits has a potential impact beyond the fight against COVID. Bringing biology into the home, the way that personal computers in the 1970s brought digital products and services, and an awareness of microchips and software code into people's daily lives and consciousness. Personal computers and then smartphones became platforms on which waves of innovators could build neat products. In addition, they helped make the digital revolution into something personal, which caused people to develop some understanding of the technology. When Zheng was growing up, his parents emphasized that he should use his computer as a tool to build things on. After his attention turned from microchips to microbes, he wondered why biology did not have the same involvement in people's daily lives as computers did. There were no simple biology devices or platforms that innovators could build things on or that people could use in their homes. As I was doing molecular biology experiments, I thought, this is so cool and it's so robust, but why hasn't it impacted people's lives in ways that a software app does? He was still asking that question when he got to graduate school. Can you think of how we can bring molecular biology into the kitchen or into people's homes? He would ask his classmates. As he was working on developing his at-home CRISPR tests for viruses, he realized that they could be the way to do that. Home testing kits could become the platform, operating system, and form factor that will allow us to weave the wonders of molecular biology more into our daily lives. Developers and entrepreneurs may someday be able to use CRISPR-based home testing kits as platforms on which to build a variety of biomedical apps, virus detection, disease diagnosis, cancer screening, nutritional analyses, microbiome assessments, and genetic tests. We can get people in their homes to check if they have the flu or just a cold, says Zhang. If their kids have a sore throat, they can determine if it's strep throat. In the process, it might give us all a deeper appreciation for how molecular biology works. The inner workings of molecules may remain, for most people, as mysterious as those of microchips, but at least all of us will be a bit more aware of the beauty and power of both. Chapter 53. Vaccines. My shot. Look me in the eyes, the doctor ordered, staring at me from behind her plastic face guard. Her eyes were vividly blue, almost as blue as her hospital mask. Yet after a moment, I started to turn to the doctor on my left, who was jabbing a long needle deep into the muscle of my upper arm. No, the first doctor snapped. Look at me. Then she explained. Because I was part of a double-blind clinical trial of an experimental COVID vaccine, they had to make sure that I didn't get any clues about whether I was being injected with a real dose or merely a placebo made of saline solution. Would I really be able to tell just by looking at the syringe? Probably not, she answered, but we want to be careful. It was early August of the plague year, and I had enlisted as a participant in the clinical trial for the COVID vaccine 
that was being developed by Pfizer with the German company BioNTech. It was a new type of vaccine that had never before been deployed. Instead of delivering deactivated components of the targeted virus, like traditional vaccines do, it injects into humans a snippet of RNA. As you know by now, RNA is the strand that runs throughout Doudna's career and this book. In the 1990s, while other scientists were focused on DNA, her Harvard professor Jack Shostak turned her on to its less celebrated but harder-working sibling that oversaw the making of proteins, acted as a guide for enzymes, could replicate itself, and was probably the root of all life on Earth. I never, ever got over my fascination about how RNA can do so many things, she says, when I tell her of my participation in the RNA vaccine trial. It's the genetic material of the coronavirus, and in a very interesting way, could be the basis for vaccines and cures. Traditional Vaccines Vaccines work by stimulating a person's immune system, a substance that resembles a dangerous virus or any other pathogen, is delivered into a person's body. That substance could be a deactivated version of the virus, or a safe fragment of the virus, or genetic instructions to make that fragment. This is intended to kick the person's immune system into gear. When it works, the body produces antibodies that will, sometimes for many years, fend off any infection if the real virus ever attacks. Vaccinations were pioneered in the 1790s by an English doctor named Edward Jenner, who noticed that many milkmaids were immune to smallpox. They had all been infected by a form of pox that afflicts cows but is harmless to humans, and Jenner surmised that the cowpox had given the milkmaids immunity to smallpox So he took some pus from a cowpox blister, rubbed it into scratches he made in the arm of his gardener's eight-year-old son, and then, this was in the days before bioethics panels, exposed the kid to smallpox. He didn't become ill. Vaccines use a variety of methods to try to stimulate the human immune system. One traditional approach is to inject a weakened and safe attenuated version of the virus. These can be good teachers because they look very much like the real thing. The body responds by making antibodies for fighting them, and the immunity can last a lifetime. Albert Sabin used this approach for the oral polio vaccine in the 1950s, and that's the way we now fend off measles, mumps, rubella, and chickenpox. It takes a long time to develop and cultivate these vaccines, The viruses have to be incubated in chicken eggs. But some companies in 2020 were using this method as a long-term option for attacking COVID. When Sabin was trying to develop a weakened polio virus for a vaccination, Jonas Salk succeeded with an approach that seemed somewhat safer, using a killed virus. This type of vaccine can still teach a person's immune system how to fight off the live virus. The Beijing-based company Sinovac used this approach to devise an early COVID vaccine. Another traditional approach is to inject a subunit of the virus, such as one of the proteins that are on the virus's coat. The immune system will then remember these, 
allowing the body to mount a quick and robust response when it encounters the actual virus. The vaccine against the hepatitis B virus, for example, works this way. Using only a fragment of the virus means that they are safer to inject into a patient and easier to produce, but they are usually not as good at producing long-term immunity. Many companies pursued this approach in the 2020 race for a COVID vaccine by developing ways to introduce into human cells the spike protein that is on the surface of the coronavirus. Genetic Vaccines The plague year of 2020 is likely to be remembered as the time when these traditional vaccines began to be supplanted by genetic vaccines. Instead of injecting a weakened or partial version of the dangerous virus into humans, these new vaccines deliver a gene or a piece of genetic coding that will guide human cells to produce on their own components of the virus. The goal is for these components to stimulate the patient's immune system. One method for doing this is by taking a harmless virus and engineering it into a gene that will make the desired component. As we all now know, viruses are very good at worming their way into human cells. That is why safe viruses can be used as a delivery system, or vector, to transport material into the cells of patients. This approach led to one of the earliest COVID vaccine candidates, which was developed at the aptly named Jenner Institute of Oxford University. Scientists there genetically re-engineered a safe virus, an adenovirus, that causes flu in chimpanzees by editing into it the gene to make the spike protein of the coronavirus. Similar vaccines developed by other companies in 2020 used a human version of the adenovirus. The vaccine created by Johnson & Johnson, for example, used a human adenovirus as the delivery mechanism to carry a gene that codes for making part of the spike protein. But the Oxford team decided that using one from a chimpanzee was better, because patients who previously had cold infections might have an immunity to the human version. The idea behind both the Oxford and the Johnson & Johnson vaccines was that the re-engineered adenovirus would make its way into human cells, where it would cause the cells to make lots of these spike proteins. That, in turn, would stimulate the person's immune system to make antibodies. As a result, the person's immune system would be primed to respond rapidly if the real coronavirus struck. The lead researcher at Oxford was Sarah Gilbert. In 1998, when she had triplets who were born prematurely, her husband took time off from his job so that she could return to her lab. In 2014, she worked on developing a vaccine for Middle East Respiratory Syndrome, MERS, using a chimp adenovirus edited to contain the gene for a spike protein. That epidemic died away before her vaccine could be deployed but it gave her a head start when COVID struck. She already knew that the chimp adenovirus had successfully delivered into humans the gene for a spike protein of MERS. As soon as the Chinese published the genetic sequence of the new coronavirus in January 2020, she began engineering its spike protein gene into the chimp virus 
waking each day at 4 a.m. By then, her triplets were 21, and all were studying biochemistry. They volunteered to be early testers, getting the vaccine and seeing if they developed antibodies. They did. Trials in monkeys conducted at a Montana primate center in March also produced promising results. The Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation provided early funding. Bill Gates also pushed Oxford to team up with a major company that could manufacture and distribute the vaccine if it worked. So Oxford forged a partnership with AstraZeneca, the British-Swedish pharmaceutical company. DNA Vaccines There is another way to get genetic material into a human cell and cause it to produce the components of a virus that can stimulate the immune system. Instead of engineering the gene for the component into a virus, you can just deliver the genetic code for the component, as DNA or RNA, into human cells. The cells thus become a vaccine manufacturing facility. Let's start with DNA vaccines. Although no DNA vaccine had ever been approved before the COVID plague, the concept seemed promising. Researchers at Innovio Pharmaceuticals and a handful of other companies in 2020 created a little circle of DNA that coded for parts of the coronavirus spike protein. The idea was that if it could get inside the nucleus of a cell, the DNA could very efficiently churn out many strands of messenger RNA to go forth and oversee the production of the spike protein parts, which serve to stimulate the immune system. DNA is cheap to produce and do not require dealing with live viruses and incubating them in chicken eggs. The big challenge facing a DNA vaccine is delivery. How can you get the little ring of engineered DNA not only into a human cell, but into the nucleus of the cell? Injecting a lot of the DNA vaccine into a patient's arm will cause some of the DNA to get into cells, but it's not very efficient. Some of the developers of DNA vaccines, including Inovio, tried to facilitate the delivery into human cells through a method called electroporation, which delivers electrical shock pulses to the patient at the site of the injection. That opens pores in the cell membranes and allows the DNA to get in. The electric pulse guns have lots of tiny needles and are unnerving to behold. It's not hard to see why this technique is unpopular, especially with those on the receiving end. One of the teams that Dowden organized at the beginning of the coronavirus crisis in March 2020 focused on these delivery challenges facing DNA vaccines. It was led by her former student, Ross Wilson, who now runs his own lab down the hall from her at Berkeley, and Alex Marson of the University of California, San Francisco. At one of Doudna's regular Zoom meetings, Wilson showed a slide of the Inovio electric zapper. They actually shoot the patient in the muscle with one of these guns, he said. About the only visible advance they've made in 10 years is now they have a little plastic thing to hide the tiny needles so they don't frighten the patient as much. Marson and Wilson devised a way to address the DNA vaccine delivery problem using CRISPR-Cas9. They put together a Cas9 protein 
a guide RNA, and a nuclear localization signal that helps the complex get into the nucleus. The result was a shuttle that could get the DNA vaccine into cells. The DNA then directs the cells to make coronavirus spike proteins and thus stimulate the immune system to fend off the real coronavirus. It's a brilliant idea that could have uses for many treatments in the future, but it has been difficult to make work. By the beginning of 2021, Wilson and Marson were still trying to prove it could be effective. RNA vaccines. That leads us back to our favorite molecule, the biochemical star of this book, RNA. The vaccine that was tested in my clinical trial makes use of the most basic function that RNA performs in the central dogma of biology, serving as a messenger RNA, mRNA, that carries genetic instructions from DNA, which is bunkered inside a cell's nucleus, to the manufacturing region of the cell, where it directs what protein to make. In the case of the COVID vaccine, the mRNA instructs cells to make part of the spike protein that is on the surface of a coronavirus. RNA vaccines deliver their payloads inside of tiny, oily capsules, known as lipid nanoparticles, that are injected by a long syringe into the muscles of the upper arm. My muscle hurt for days. An RNA vaccine has certain advantages over a DNA vaccine. Most notably, the RNA does not need to get into the nucleus of the cell, where DNA is headquartered. The RNA does its work in the outer region of cells, the cytoplasm, which is where proteins are constructed. So an RNA vaccine simply needs to deliver its payload into this outer region. In 2020, two innovative young pharmaceutical companies produced RNA vaccines for COVID. Moderna, based in Cambridge, Massachusetts, and the German company BioNTech, which formed a partnership with the American company Pfizer. My clinical trial was for BioNTech-Pfizer. BioNTech was founded in 2008 by the husband and wife research team of Ur Shahin and Oslam Turece, with the goal of creating cancer immunotherapies, which stimulate the immune system to fight cancerous cells. It soon became a leader in devising medicines that use mRNA as vaccines against viruses. In January 2020, when Shahin read a medical journal article on the new coronavirus in China, he sent an email to the BioNTech board saying that it was wrong to believe that this virus would come and go as easily as MERS and SARS. This time it is different, he told them. BioNTech launched what they dubbed Project Lightspeed, to devise a vaccine based on RNA sequences that would cause human cells to make versions of the coronavirus's spike protein. Once it looked promising, Shahin called Katherine Jensen, the head of vaccine research and development at Pfizer. The two companies had been working together since 2018 to develop flu vaccines using mRNA technology, and he asked her whether Pfizer would want to enter a similar partnership for a COVID vaccine. Jansen said she had been about to call and propose the same thing. The deal was signed in March. By then, a similar RNA vaccine was being developed by Moderna, 
a much smaller company with only 800 employees. Its chair and co-founder, Nubar Afeyan, a Beirut-born Armenian who immigrated to the United States, became fascinated in 2005 by the prospect that mRNA could be inserted into human cells to direct the production of a desired protein. So he hired some young graduates from the Harvard lab of Jack Shostak, who had been Jennifer Doudna's Ph.D. advisor and turned her on to the wonders of RNA. The company mainly focused on using mRNA to try to develop personalized cancer treatments, but it also had begun experimenting with using the technique to make vaccines against viruses. In January 2020, Afeon was celebrating the birthday of one of his daughters at a Cambridge restaurant when he got an urgent text message from the CEO of his company, Stefan Bansell, in Switzerland. So he stepped outside in the freezing temperature to call him back. Bansell said that he wanted to launch a project to use mRNA to attempt a vaccine against the new coronavirus. At that point, Moderna had 20 drugs in development, but none had been approved or even reached the final stage of clinical trials. Afeon instantly authorized him to start work without waiting for full board approval. Lacking Pfizer's resources, Moderna had to depend on funding from the U.S. government. Anthony Fauci, the government's infectious disease expert, was supportive. Go for it, he declared. Whatever it costs, don't worry about it. It took Moderna only two days to create the desired RNA sequences that would produce the spike protein. And 38 days later, it shipped the first box of vials to the NIH to begin early-stage trials. Afeon keeps a picture of that box on his cell phone. As with CRISPR therapies, a difficult part of the vaccine development was creating the delivery mechanism into the cell. Moderna had been working for 10 years to perfect lipid nanoparticles, the tiny synthetic capsules that can carry molecules into a human cell. This gave it one advantage over BioNTech-Pfizer. Its particles were more stable and did not have to be stored at extremely low temperatures. Moderna is also using this technology to deliver CRISPR into human cells. Our biohacker steps in. At this point, Josiah Zayner, the garage scientist who injected himself with CRISPR, came back on stage to play puck again. As others were eagerly awaiting results for the genetic vaccines that went into clinical trials in the summer of 2020, Zayner brought his wise fool spirit to the battle, enlisting a couple of like-minded biohackers in the cause. His plan was to produce and then inject himself with one of the many potential coronavirus vaccines that were being developed. Then he would see whether, A, he survived, and B, he developed antibodies to protect against COVID. You can call it a stunt if you want, but it's really about people taking control of science and moving it fucking faster, he told me. Specifically, he decided to make and test a potential vaccine that had been described that May in a science paper by researchers at Harvard. The vaccine was just beginning human trials. It was a DNA vaccine that included the genetic code for the spike of the coronavirus. The paper described precisely how to make it. With the recipe in hand, Zayner ordered the ingredients and went to work. 
from his garage lab in Oakland, just seven miles south of Doudna's at Berkeley, Zayner launched a YouTube streaming course named Project McAfee after the antivirus software so that others could follow along and perform the experiments on themselves. Biohackers can be like the test pilots of the modern world by doing the slightly crazy shit that needs to be done, he declared. He had two co-pilots. David Ishii is a ponytailed rural Mississippi dog breeder who uses CRISPR to edit the genes of Dalmatians and Mastiffs to try to make them healthier, stronger, and in one offbeat experiment, glow in the dark. He joined by Skype from a wooden shed in his backyard, crammed with lab equipment. When Zayner said that they would be streaming their experiments for the next two months, Ishii took a sip of a monster energy drink and interjected in his languid, honeysuckle-scented drawl, or at least until the authorities come for us. Also Skyping in was Daria Danseva, a student in Dnipro, Ukraine, who created her country's first biohacking lab. Ukraine is pretty easy about regulating biohacking, because the state literally does not exist, she says. I believe that knowledge is not just for the elites, it's for all of us. That's why we do this. The experiments that Zayner performed through the summer of 2020 were not just a showy stunt, like when he injected CRISPR into his arm at the San Francisco conference. We could just inject this shit, he said of the DNA vaccine described by the Harvard researchers. But I don't think anyone would get anything out of that. We want to add a lot more value. Instead, he and his co-pilots carefully, week after week, did a live stream demonstration to teach people how to make the code for the spike proteins of the coronavirus. That way they could get dozens, perhaps hundreds of people to test it, thus gathering useful data about its effectiveness. If a bunch of scrubs like us can do this, hundreds of people could be doing it and moving science forward more quickly, he says. We want everyone to have the opportunity to create this DNA vaccine and test if it creates antibodies in human cells. I asked him why he thought a DNA vaccine would work with just a simple injection rather than the electroplating shocks and other techniques that some researchers said were needed to assure that the DNA got into the nucleus of human cells. We wanted to follow the Harvard paper as closely as possible and they did not use any special techniques, like electroporation, he replied. DNA is easy to produce, so if some delivery method doubles the efficiency, you can get the same results just by doubling or so the amount of DNA you inject. On Sunday, August 9th, the three biohackers appeared together from California, Mississippi, and Ukraine in a live video stream to inject into their arms the vaccines they had been concocting over the past two months. We three tried to push science forward by showing what people are capable of doing in a do-it-yourself environment, Zayner explained as the video begins. So anyway, here we go. We're doing it. Then Zayner, wearing a Michael Jordan red tank top jersey, plunged a long needle into his arm as Danseva and Ishii followed suit. He offered a bit of reassurance to his audience. For all of you who signed in to see us die, it's not going to happen. 
He was right. They didn't die. They simply winced a lot. And in the end, there was evidence that the vaccine may have worked. Because his experiment did not include any special method for getting the DNA into the nucleus of human cells, the results were not totally clear or convincing. But when he tested his blood in September, streaming it live on the Internet for everyone to watch, Zayner found evidence that he had developed neutralizing antibodies to fight the coronavirus. He called it a mild success, but noted that biology often produces murky results. It gave him a greater appreciation for careful clinical trials. Some of the scientific researchers I talked to were appalled by what Zayner did, but I found myself rooting for him. If his shadow has offended, think but this and all is mended. More citizen involvement in science is a good thing. Genetic coding will never become as crowdsourced and democratized as software coding. But biology should not remain the exclusive realm of a gospel-guarding priesthood. When Zayner kindly sent me a dose of his homemade vaccine, I decided not to inject it. But I admired him and his two other musketeers for doing so. It made me want to get involved in testing vaccines, though in a more authorized way. My Clinical Trial My own involvement in citizen science was to sign up for a clinical trial of the Pfizer-BioNTech mRNA vaccine. As noted in the opening of this chapter, it was a double-blind study, meaning that neither I nor the researchers were told who got a real vaccine and who got a placebo. When I volunteered at Oxner Hospital in New Orleans, I was told that the study could last up to two years. That raised a few questions in my mind. What would happen, I asked the coordinator, if the vaccine got approved before then? She told me that I would then be unblinded, meaning that they would tell me if I had gotten the placebo, and if so, give me the real vaccine. What would happen if some other vaccines got approved while our trial was still underway? I could drop out whenever I wanted, she said, and seek to get the approved vaccine. Then I asked a more difficult question. If I dropped out, would I then be unblinded? She paused. She called her supervisor, who paused as well. Finally, I was told, that's not been decided. So I went to the top. I posed these questions to Francis Collins at the National Institutes of Health, which was overseeing the vaccine studies. There is an advantage to being a book writer. You have asked a question that is currently engaging the members of the vaccines working group in serious debate, he replied. Just a few days earlier, a consultation report on this issue had been prepared by the Department of Bioethics at NIH headquarters in Bethesda, Maryland. Even before reading the five-page report, I was impressed and comforted that the NIH had something called a Department of Bioethics. The report was thoughtful. For a variety of scenarios, the scientific value that could come from continuing a blinded study was balanced against the health of the trial participants. In the case that the vaccine got FDA approval, the advice was, there will be an obligation to inform participants so that they can decide whether to obtain the vaccine. 
After digesting all of this, I decided to quit asking questions and enroll. It might aid the science a little bit, and I would learn firsthand, or first arm, about RNA vaccines. Some people are very skeptical about vaccines and clinical trials. I err on the side of being trusting. RNA Victorious In December of 2020, with COVID once again resurging throughout much of the world, the two RNA vaccines were the first to be authorized in the United States and became the vanguard of the biotech battle to beat back the pandemic. The plucky little RNA molecule, which had spawned life on our planet and then plagued us in the form of coronaviruses, rode to our rescue. Jennifer Doudna and her colleagues had employed RNA in a tool to edit our genes and then as a method to detect coronaviruses. Now scientists had found a way to enlist RNA's most basic biological function in order to turn our cells into manufacturing plants for the spike protein that would stimulate our immunity to the coronavirus. These letters, GCA, CGUA, GU, GU, it is a snippet of the RNA that creates the part of the spike protein that binds to human cells, and these letters became part of the code used in the new vaccines. Never before had an RNA vaccine been approved for use. But a year after the novel coronavirus was first identified, both Pfizer-BioNTech and Moderna had devised these new genetic vaccines and tested them in large clinical trials involving people like me, where they proved more than 90% effective. When the CEO of Pfizer, Albert Borla, was informed of the results on a conference call, even he was stunned. Repeat it, he asked. Did you say 19 or 90? Throughout human history, we have been subjected to wave after wave of viral and bacterial plagues. The first known one was the Babylon flu epidemic around 1200 B.C. The plague of Athens in 429 B.C. killed close to 100,000 people. The Antonine plague in the 2nd century killed 10 million the plague of Justinian in the 6th century killed 50 million, and the Black Death of the 14th century took almost 200 million lives, close to half of Europe's population. The COVID pandemic that killed more than 1.5 million people in 2020 will not be the final plague. However, thanks to the new RNA vaccine technology, our defenses against most future viruses are likely to be immensely faster and more effective. It was a bad day for viruses, Moderna's chair, Afeyan, says about the Sunday in November 2020, when he got the first word of the clinical trial results. There was a sudden shift in the evolutionary balance between what human technology can do and what viruses can do. We may never have a pandemic again. The invention of easily reprogrammable RNA vaccines was a lightning-fast triumph of human ingenuity, but it was based on decades of curiosity-driven research into one of the most fundamental aspects of life on planet Earth, how genes encoded by DNA 
are transcribed into snippets of RNA that tell cells what proteins to assemble. Likewise, CRISPR gene editing technology came from understanding the way that bacteria use snippets of RNA to guide enzymes to chop up dangerous viruses. Great inventions come from understanding basic science. Nature is beautiful that way. Chapter 54. CRISPR Cures The development of vaccines, both the conventional sort and those employing RNA, would eventually help to beat back the coronavirus pandemic. But they are not a perfect solution. They rely on stimulating a person's immune system, always a risky thing to do. Most deaths from COVID-19 came from organ inflammation due to unwanted immune system responses. As vaccine makers have repeatedly discovered, the multi-layered human immune system is very tricky to control. In it lurk mysteries. It contains no simple on-off switches, but instead works through the interaction of complicated molecules that are not easy to calibrate. The use of antibodies from the blood plasma of recovering patients or made synthetically, also helped fight the COVID plague. But these treatments are, likewise, not a perfect long-term solution for each new wave of virus. Convalescent plasma is difficult to harvest from donors in large quantities, and lab-made monoclonal antibodies are hard to manufacture. The long-range solution to our fight against viruses is the same as the one bacteria found. Using CRISPR, to guide a scissors-like enzyme to chop up the genetic material of a virus without having to enlist the patient's immune system. Once again, the circles of scientists around Doudna and Zhang found themselves in competition as they raced to adapt CRISPR to this urgent mission. Cameron Meervold and Carver Cameron Meervold straddles the world of digital coding and genetic coding, which is not surprising, given his heritage and breeding. The lookalike son of Nathan Meervold, who was the longtime chief technology officer and sparky genius at Microsoft, he has his father's gleeful eyes, chipmunked-cheeked round face, effervescent laugh, and free-range curiosity. People of my generation were awed by his father's brilliance, not only in the digital realm, but also in fields ranging from food science to asteroid tracking to the speed at which dinosaurs could whip their tails. Cameron shares his father's facility with computer coding, but like many in his generation, he focused more on genetic coding and the wonders of biology. As a Princeton undergraduate, he studied molecular and computational biology, then he got his doctorate from Harvard's Systems, Synthetic, and Quantitative Biology program, which combines biology and computer science. He loved the intellectual challenge, but worried that his work on nano-engineering of organisms was so cutting-edge that it would have little practical impact in the foreseeable future. So, after he got his Ph.D., he took time off to hike the Colorado Trail I was really trying to figure out where to go scientifically, he says. On one leg of his hike, he met a guy who asked him a lot of earnest questions about science. 
During that conversation, Mirvold says, it became apparent to me that I liked working on problems that were directly relevant to human health. That led him to decide to become a postdoc in the lab of Pardis Sabati, a Harvard biologist who uses computer algorithms to explain the evolution of disease. She was born in Tehran and as a child fled with her family to America during the Iranian Revolution. A member of the Broad Institute, she collaborates closely with Feng Zhang. Joining Pardis's lab and working with Feng Zhang seemed like a really great way to take on the problem of fighting viruses, Mirvold says. As a result, Mirvold became part of the Boston-area orbit around Zhang and eventually a player in its CRISPR Star Wars with the Berkeley-area orbit of Jennifer Doudna. While studying for his doctorate at Harvard, Mirvold became friends with Jonathan Gutenberg and Omar Abudea, the two grad students who worked with Zhang on CRISPR-Cas13. Mirvold would often kick around ideas with them when he visited Zhang's lab to use its gene sequencing machine. That's when I realized, wow, like those two guys were a really special pair, Mirvold says. We came up with ways to use Cas13 to detect different RNA sequences, and I thought it would be a really cool opportunity. When Mirvold suggested to Sabati that they should collaborate with Jung's lab, she was enthusiastic because there was a lot of synergy between the two teams. It resulted in a made-for-the-movies diverse American platoon, Gutenberg, Abudea, Jung, Mirvold, and Sabati. They worked together on Zhang's 2017 paper describing the Sherlock system for detecting RNA viruses. The following year, they collaborated on a paper showing how to make the Sherlock process even simpler. It appeared in the same issue of Science as the paper from Doudna's lab, describing the virus detection tool developed by Chen and Harrington. In addition to using CRISPR-Cas13 to detect viruses, Mirvold became interested in turning it into a therapeutic treatment, one that could get rid of viruses. There are hundreds of viruses that can infect people, but there's only a handful that have available drugs, he says. That's in part because viruses are so different from each other. What if we could come up with a system that we could program to treat different viruses? Most of the viruses that cause human problems, including the coronavirus, have RNA as their genetic material. They are precisely the type of virus for which you would want a CRISPR enzyme that targets RNA, such as Cas13, he says. So he came up with a way to use CRISPR-Cas13 to do for humans what it does for bacteria. Target a dangerous virus and chop it up. Continuing the tradition of reverse-engineering clever acronyms for CRISPR-based inventions, he dubbed the proposed system CARVER for Cas13-Assisted Restriction of Viral Expression and Readout. In December 2016, shortly after he joined Sabati's lab as a postdoc, Mirvold sent her an email reporting on some initial experiments using CARVER to target a virus that causes the symptoms of meningitis or encephalitis. His data showed that it reduced the levels of virus significantly. Sabati was able to get a DARPA grant to study the Carver system as a way to destroy viruses in humans, 
Mirvold and others in her lab did a computer analysis of more than 350 genomes from RNA viruses that infected humans and identified what are known as conserved sequences, meaning those that are the same in many viruses. These sequences have been preserved unchanged by evolution and thus are not likely to mutate away anytime soon. His team engineered an arsenal of guide RNAs designed to target these sequences. He then tested Cas13's ability to stop three viruses, including the type that causes severe flu. In cell cultures in a lab, the Carver system was able to significantly reduce the level of viruses. Their paper was published online in October 2019. Our results demonstrate that Cas13 can be harnessed to target a wide range of single-stranded RNA viruses, they wrote. A programmable antiviral technology would allow for the rapid development of antivirals that can target existing or newly identified pathogens. A few weeks after the Carver paper came out, the first cases of COVID-19 were detected in China. It was one of these moments when you realize the stuff you've been working on for a long time might be a lot more relevant than you thought, Mirvold says. He started a new computer folder labeled NCOV for novel coronavirus, since it had not yet been given an official name. By late January, he and his colleagues had studied the sequence of the coronavirus genome and begun work on CRISPR-based tests for detecting it. The result was a burst of papers in the spring of 2020 for improving CRISPR-based detection technologies for viruses. These included a system known as CARMEN, designed to detect 169 viruses at one time, and a process that combined Sherlock's detection capability with an RNA extraction method called Hudson to create a single-step detection technique he named SHINE. In addition to its CRISPR wizardry, the Broad was a master at devising acronyms. Mirvold decided that his time could best be used in developing tools that could detect viruses rather than working on treatments like Carver designed to destroy viruses. He was in the process of moving his lab to Princeton, where he had accepted a position beginning in 2021. I think in the longer term, we need treatments, he says. But I decided that diagnostics were something that we could actually deliver on quickly. In the West Coast orbit of Jennifer Doudna, however, there was a team that was pushing forward with a coronavirus treatment. Similar to the Carver system that Mirvold had invented, it would use CRISPR to seek and destroy viruses. Stanley Chi and Pac-Man Stanley Chi grew up in what he calls a small city in China, Weifang, on the coast about 300 miles south of Beijing. Its urban core is actually home to more than 2.6 million people, about the same as Chicago, but that is regarded as small in China, he says. It is bustling with factories, but does not have a world-class university. So Chi went to Tsinghua University in Beijing, where he majored in math and physics. He applied to Berkeley to do graduate work in physics, but he found himself increasingly attracted to biology. It seemed to have more application for helping the world, he says. 
so I decided to switch from physics to bioengineering after my second year at Berkeley. There, he gravitated to the lab of Doudna, who became one of his two advisors. Instead of focusing on gene editing, he developed new ways to use CRISPR to interfere with the expression of genes. I was surprised at how she spent time to discuss science with me, not on the superficial level, but down to the deep level, and including key technical details, he says. His interest in viruses increased in 2019, when he was funded, as Mirvold and Doudna were, by DARPA's program for preparing against pandemics. We started with a focus on finding a CRISPR method to fight influenza, he says. Then coronavirus struck. In late January 2020, after reading a story about the situation in China, Qi called together his team and shifted his focus from influenza to COVID. Qi's approach was similar to that pursued by Mirvold. He wanted to use a guided enzyme to target and then cleave the RNA of the invading virus. Like Zhang and Mirvold, he decided to use a version of Cas13. The discovery of Cas13A and Cas13B was done at the Broad by Zhang. But another Cas13 variation had been discovered by a brilliant bioengineer in Doudna's orbit, Patrick Su, who had experience in both the Broad and Berkeley camps. Born in Taiwan, Su had gotten his undergraduate degree at Berkeley and his doctorate from Harvard, where he worked in the Zhang lab when Zhang was racing Doudna to make CRISPR work in human cells. Su then spent two years as a scientist at Editus, the CRISPR-based company that Zhang had co-founded, and Doudna had quit. From there, he went to the Salk Institute in Southern California, where he discovered the enzyme that became known as Cas13D. In 2019, he became an assistant professor at Berkeley and one of the team leaders in Doudna's effort to tackle COVID. Because of its small size and highly specific targeting capability, the Cas13D that Sue discovered was chosen by Qi as the best enzyme to target the coronavirus in human lung cells. In the competition to come up with good acronyms, Qi scored high. He dubbed his system Pac-Man, which he had extracted from Prophylactic Antiviral CRISPR in Human Cells. The name was that of the chomping character in the once popular video game. I like video games, Chi told Wired's Stephen Levy. The Pac-Man tries to eat cookies, and it is chased by a ghost. But when it encounters a specific kind of cookie called the power cookie, in our case, a CRISPR-Cas13 design, suddenly it turns itself to be so powerful. It can start eating the ghost and start cleaning up the whole battlefield. Chi and his team tested Pac-Man on synthesized fragments of the coronavirus. In mid-February, his doctoral student Tim Abbott ran experiments showing that Pac-Man in a lab setting reduced the amount of coronavirus by 90%. We demonstrated that Cas13D-based genetic targeting can effectively target and cleave the RNA sequences of SARS-CoV-2 fragments, Chi and his collaborators wrote. Pac-Man is a promising strategy to combat not only coronaviruses, including that causing COVID-19, but also a broad range of other viruses. 
The paper went online March 14, 2020, the day after Doudna's initial meeting of Bay Area researchers who had enlisted in the coronavirus fight. She emailed her a link, and within an hour she had replied, inviting him to join the group and present at their second weekly online meeting. I told her we needed some resources to develop the Pac-Man idea, get access to live coronavirus samples, and figure out delivery systems that might get it into the lung cells of patients, he says. She was super supportive. Delivery. The concept behind Carver and Pac-Man was a brilliant one, although in fairness I should note that bacteria had thought of it more than a billion years ago. The RNA-cleaving Cas13 enzymes could chomp up coronaviruses in human cells. If they could be made to work, Carver and Pac-Man would act more efficiently than a vaccine that produces an immune response. By directly targeting the invading virus, these CRISPR-based technologies avoid having to rely on the body's erratic immune response. The challenge was delivery. How could you get it to the right cells in a human patient and then through the membranes of those cells? That is a very difficult challenge, especially when it involves getting into lung cells, which is why Carver and Pac-Man were still not ready for deployment in humans in 2021. At her March 22nd weekly meeting, Doudna introduced she and showed a slide describing the group he would lead in their coronavirus war. She teamed him up with researchers in her lab who were working on novel delivery methods, and she worked with him to prepare a white paper pitching the project to potential funders. We use a variant of CRISPR, Cas13D, to target viral RNA sequences for cleavage and destruction, they wrote. Our work offers a new strategy that could potentially be used as a genetic vaccine and treatment for COVID-19. The traditional way to deliver CRISPR and other genetic therapies is by using safe viruses, such as adeno-associated viruses, which don't cause any disease or provoke severe immune responses, as viral vectors that can deliver genetic material into cells. Or they can create synthetic virus-like particles to do the delivery, which is the specialty of Jennifer Hamilton and other researchers in Doudna's lab. Another method, electroporation, works by applying an electric field onto a cell's membrane to make it more permeable. All of these approaches have their drawbacks. The small size of viral vectors often limits the types of CRISPR proteins and number of guide RNAs that are deliverable. In search of a safe and effective delivery mechanism, the IGI would need to live up to its name and innovate. To work with Xi on delivery systems, Doudna puts him in touch with Ross Wilson, her former postdoc. Wilson, who now has a lab next to hers at Berkeley, is an expert in new ways to deliver material into the cells of patients. As noted earlier, he is working with Alex Marson to devise a delivery system for a DNA vaccine. Wilson fears that delivering Pac-Man or Carver into cells will be difficult. Chi is nevertheless hopeful that these CRISPR-based therapies can be deployed in the next few years. One method that is proving promising is to encase the CRISPR-Cas13 complex inside of synthetic molecules, 
called lipitoids, which are about the size of a virus. He has been working with the Biological Nanostructures Facility at Lawrence Berkeley National Lab, a sprawling government complex on a hill above Berkeley's campus, to create lipitoids that can deliver Pac-Man into lung cells. One way this could work, she says, is by delivering Pac-Man treatments through a nasal spray or some other form of nebulizer. My son has asthma, he says. So as a little kid playing football, he used a nebulizer as a preventive measure. People use these regularly to prepare the lungs to be less allergic if they are exposed to something. The same could be done during a coronavirus pandemic. People could use a nasal spray so that Pac-Man or another CRISPR-Cas13 prophylactic treatment will protect them. Once the delivery mechanisms are worked out, CRISPR-based systems such as Pac-Man and Carver will be able to treat and protect people without having to activate the body's own immune system, which can be quirky and delicate. They can also be programmed to target essential sequences in the virus's genetic code so they cannot be easily evaded by the virus mutating, and they are simple to reprogram when a new virus emerges. This concept of reprogramming is also apt in a larger sense. The CRISPR treatments come from reprogramming a system that we humans found in nature. That gives me hope, Mirvold says, that when we face other great medical challenges, we will be able to find other such technologies in nature and put them to use. It is a reminder of the value of curiosity-driven basic research into what Leonardo da Vinci liked to refer to as the infinite wonders of nature. You never know, Mirvold says, when some obscure thing you're studying is going to have important implications for human health. As Doudna likes to put it, nature is beautiful that way. Chapter 55 Cold Spring Harbor Virtual CRISPR and COVID The stories of CRISPR and COVID wove together at the Cold Spring Harbor Laboratory's annual CRISPR conference in August 2020. A primary topic was how CRISPR was being used to fight the coronavirus, featuring talks by Jennifer Doudna and Feng Zhang, as well as some of the COVID warriors in their rival orbits. Instead of gathering on the rolling campus overlooking an inlet of Long Island Sound, Participants convened by Zoom and Slack, looking a bit bleary from months of interacting with boxed faces on their computer screens. The meeting also wove in another strand of this book. It celebrated the 100th anniversary of the birth of Rosalind Franklin, whose pioneering work on the structure of DNA inspired Doudna, when she read The Double Helix as a young girl, to believe that women could do science. The cover of the meeting's program featured a colorized photograph of Franklin peering into a microscope. Fyodor Urnov, who directed the COVID testing lab that Doudna created at Berkeley, gave the opening tribute to Franklin. I expected him to deliver it with his usual dramatic flair, but instead he made it, properly, a serious look at her scientific work, including her research into the location of RNA in tobacco mosaic viruses. The only flourish came at the end, 
when he showed a picture of Franklin's empty lab bench after her death. The best way to honor her is to remember that the structural sexism she faced remains with us today, he said, his voice choking up a bit. Rosalind is the godmother of gene editing. Doudna's talk began with a reminder of the natural connection between CRISPR and COVID. CRISPR is a fabulous way that evolution has dealt with the problem of viral infection, she said. We can learn from it in this pandemic. Jung followed with an update on his STOP technology for easy-to-use portable testing machines. As he finished, I sent him a message asking when they would become available at airports and schools, and he texted back seconds later with pictures of the latest prototypes, which had been delivered that week. We are working hard to make it available this fall, he said. Cameron Meervold, speaking animatedly with both hands like his father does, gave a description of how his Carmen system could be programmed to detect multiple viruses at once. Doudna's former student Janice Chen followed with a presentation about the detector platform that she and Lucas Harrington had created at Mammoth, Patrick Sue reported on the work being done with Doudna's team to create better methods for amplifying genetic material so it could be detected. And Stanley Chi described how his Pac-Man system could be used not only to detect coronaviruses, but also destroy them. I was invited to moderate a panel about COVID, and I began by asking Jung and Doudna about the possibility that the pandemic might create greater public interest in biology. When at-home testing kits become low-cost and easy to use, Jung replied, they will democratize and decentralize medicine. The most important next steps will be innovations in microfluidics, which involves channeling tiny amounts of liquid in a device and then connecting the information to our cell phones That will allow us all, in the privacy of our homes, to test our saliva and blood for hundreds of medical indicators, monitor our health conditions on our phones, and share the data with doctors and researchers. Doudna added that the pandemic had accelerated the convergence of science with other fields. The engagement of non-scientists in our work will help achieve an incredibly interesting biotechnology revolution she predicted. This was molecular biology's moment. Near the end of the panel, an audience member named Kevin Bishop electronically raised his hand. He worked at the National Institutes of Health and wanted to ask why there were so few African Americans like himself enrolled in the clinical trials for COVID vaccines. That led to a discussion of the distrust blacks have about medical trials because of historical horrors, such as the Tuskegee experiments, in which placebos were given to some sharecroppers suffering from syphilis who thought they were getting real medical treatments. A few of the conference attendees questioned whether it was important to have racial diversity in the COVID vaccine trials. The consensus, yes, for medical and moral reasons. Bishop suggested enlisting African-American churches and colleges into the effort of enrolling volunteers. The diversity issue, it struck me, involves far more than just clinical trials. 
Judging from the list of attendees at the meeting, women are becoming well represented in the field of biological research, but there were very few African Americans, either at the conference or on the benches in the various labs I had visited. In that regard, the new life sciences revolution resembles, unfortunately, the digital revolution. If there are not efforts at outreach and mentorship, biotechnology will be yet another revolution that leaves most blacks behind. CRISPR marches on. The conference presentations on how CRISPR was being deployed to fight COVID were impressive. But equally so were the reports on the discoveries that were pushing CRISPR gene editing forward. The most important were those made by one of Doudna's co-organizers of the conference, Harvard's soft-spoken superstar David Liu. He has a foot in both the Cambridge and Berkeley camps. After graduating first in his class from Harvard, he got his doctorate from Berkeley and then returned to teach at Harvard, where he became Jung's colleague at the Broad Institute and co-founder with him of Beam Therapeutics. With his disarming gentility and friendly intellect, he has remained close to both Doudna and Jung. Beginning in 2016, Liu began developing a technique known as base editing, which can make a precise change in a single letter in DNA without cutting a break in the strands. It's like a very sharp pencil for editing. At the 2019 Cold Spring Harbor meeting, he announced a further advance called prime editing, in which a guide RNA can carry a long sequence to be edited into a targeted segment of DNA. It requires making only a tiny nick in the DNA rather than a double-strand break. Edits of up to 80 letters are possible. If CRISPR-Cas9 is like scissors and base editors are like pencils, then you can think of prime editors as like word processors, Lou explained. Dozens of the presentations at the 2020 meeting involved young researchers who had found clever new ways to use base editing and prime editing. Lou himself described his latest discovery of how to deploy base editing tools into the energy-producing region of cells. In addition, he was a co-author of a paper that described a user-friendly web app that could be used to design prime editing experiments. COVID had not slowed the CRISPR revolution. The importance of base editing was highlighted on the cover of the conference book. Just below the colorized picture of Rosalind Franklin was a beautiful 3D image of a base editor attached to a purple RNA guide and a blue DNA target. Using some of the structural biology and imaging techniques that Franklin pioneered, the image had been published a month earlier by the labs of Doudna and Liu, with much of the work done by Gavin Knott, the postdoc, who had taught me how to edit DNA using CRISPR. The Blackford Bar In the dining hall on the Cold Spring Harbor campus, there is a wood-paneled lounge known as the Blackford Bar that manages to be both spacious and cozy. Old photographs line the walls. Multiple ales and lagers are on tap. TV sets broadcast both scientific lectures and Yankee baseball games, and an outdoor deck overlooks the tranquil harbor. There you can find, on most summer evenings, 
conference attendees, researchers from nearby lab buildings, and the occasional groundskeeper or campus worker. During previous CRISPR conferences, it was filled with talk of impending discoveries, fanciful ideas, potential job openings, and high and low gossip. In 2020, the conference organizers tried to recreate the scene with a Slack channel and Zoom room called Hashtag Virtual Bar. Its purpose, they said, was to simulate the serendipitous introductions you would have experienced at the Blackford Bar. So I decided to give it a try. About 40 others showed up the first night. People introduced themselves in a stilted way, like at a real cocktail reception. Then a moderator broke us into groups of six and sent us to breakout Zoom rooms. After 20 minutes, each breakout session ended, and we were assigned randomly to a different group. Oddly, the format worked rather well when the conversations drilled down on specific scientific questions. There were interesting discussions of such topics as protein synthesis techniques and the hardware being built at Synthago to do automated cell editing. But there was none of the ordinary social chat that lubricates real life and nurtures emotional connections. There was no Yankee game in the background, nor sunset to share while sitting on the deck. I left after two rounds. Cold Spring Harbor Laboratory was founded in 1890, based on a belief in the magic of in-person meetings. The formula is to attract interesting people to an idyllic locale and provide them with opportunities to interact, including at a nice bar. The beauty of nature and the joy that comes from unstructured human engagement is a powerful combination. Even when they don't interact, such as when an awed young Jennifer Doudna passes the aging icon Barbara McClintock on a path through the Gold Spring Harbor campus, people benefit from an atmosphere that is charged in a way that sparks creativity. One of the transformations wrought by the coronavirus pandemic is that more meetings in the future will be done virtually. It's a shame. If COVID doesn't kill us, Zoom will. As Steve Jobs emphasized when he built a headquarters for Pixar, and planned a new Apple campus. New ideas are born out of serendipitous encounters. In-person interactions are especially important in the initial brainstorming of new ideas and the forging of personal bonds. As Aristotle taught, we are a social animal, an instinct that cannot fully be satisfied online. Nevertheless, there will be an upside to the fact that the coronavirus has expanded how we work together and share ideas. By hastening the age of Zoom, the pandemic will broaden the horizons of scientific collaboration, allowing it to be even more global and crowdsourced. A walk along the cobblestone streets of San Juan was the catalyst for the collaboration between Doudna and Charpentier. But the technology of Skype and Dropbox allowed them and their two postdocs to work together for six months in three countries to decipher CRISPR-Cas9. Because people have now become comfortable meeting in boxes on a computer screen, teamwork will be more efficient. A balance, I hope, will be struck. The reward for our efficient virtual meetings will be the chance to hang out together in person in places like the campus of Cold Spring Harbor. Charpentier, Remotely 
At the end of Doudna's scientific presentation at the conference, a young researcher asked a personal question. What inspired you to work on CRISPR-Cas9 the very first time? Doudna paused for a moment, since it was not the type of question that scientific researchers usually ask after a technical presentation. It started as a wonderful collaboration with Emmanuel Charpentier, she replied. I am forever indebted to her for the work we did together. It was an interesting answer, because a few days earlier, Doudna had talked to me about her sorrow that she and Charpentier had drifted apart, personally as well as scientifically. She lamented that she continued to detect a frostiness and asked me if, in my conversations with Charpentier, I had picked up more clues about why. One of the things I am saddest about in the CRISPR tale is the fact that I really like Emmanuel, but our relationship fell apart, she said. Doudna had studied French in high school and college, even at one point considering switching her major from chemistry to French. I always had this fantasy of myself as a French girl, and Emmanuel in some ways reminded me of that. I just adore her on a certain level. I wish we could have continued to have a wonderful close professional and personal connection and could have enjoyed the science and all of the things that came afterwards as friends. When she told me this, I suggested that she invite Charpentier to speak at the Cold Spring Harbor virtual conference. Doudna immediately seized on the idea and asked her, through the conference's co-organizer, Maria Jason, to give the tribute to Rosalind Franklin or speak on any other topic. I followed up with Charpentier to encourage her to accept. She hesitated at first, then replied that she had another meeting to attend remotely during that period. Jason and Doudna offered to be flexible about the time and date, but Charpentier declined. Sensing her reticence, I tried a different approach. I invited her to join me and Doudna by Zoom the day after the conference for a private chat. I told her that I wanted to include their reminiscences at the end of this book. She surprised me by embracing the idea. She even emailed Doudna to say that she was looking forward to it. As a result, we met online the Sunday after the conference. I had prepared a list of questions to ask. But as soon as Doudna and Charpentier came online, they began talking to each other and catching up, at first in the slightly stilted manner of people who have not seen each other for a while, and then, after a few minutes, more animatedly. Doudna began referring to Charpentier by her nickname, Manu, and soon they were both laughing. I turned off my video camera so I could leave the screen to them while I just listened. Doudna talked about how tall her teenage son Andy had grown, shared a picture that Martin Yenick had sent of his new baby, and joked about an awards event she and Charpentier did with the American Cancer Society in 2018, at which Joe Biden told them that he did not plan to run for president. Doudna congratulated Charpentier on the success of her CRISPR therapeutics company in curing sickle cell anemia in its Nashville trial, we published our paper in 2012, and here we are in 2020, and someone has already been cured of a disease, Doudna said. Charpentier nodded and laughed. We can be very happy at how fast things happened, she said. The talk gradually turned more personal. 
Charpentier recalled the beginning of their collaboration, when they had lunch at the conference in Puerto Rico, walked the cobblestone streets together, and ended up in a bar for a drink. Many times when you meet another scientist, she said, you know that you could never work with them. But their meeting was the opposite. I knew we would be good collaborators, she told Doudna. Then they swapped memories about working around the clock by Skype and Dropbox in their six-month race to decode CRISPR-Cas9. Charpentier confessed that she worried whenever she sent Doudna some writing for the paper they produced jointly. I thought you would have to correct my English, she said. Doudna replied, Your English is great, and I remember you had to correct some of my own mistakes. It was a lot of fun to write that paper together, because we have different ways of thinking about things. Finally, when their exchanges began to lag, I turned on my video camera to ask a question. Over the past few years, you've drifted apart both scientifically and personally, I said. Do you miss the friendship you had? Charpentier jumped in, eager to explain what had happened. We were on the road a lot because of the prize ceremonies and other things, she said. People were overloading our schedule, and we did not have any time to enjoy the in-between. So part of the problem was the simple fact that we both became terribly busy. She spoke wistfully of the week they had spent together in Berkeley in June 2012, when they were finishing their paper. There is this picture of us, with me with a funny haircut, in front of your institute, she said. It was the last time they had been relaxed together, Charpentier said. After that, it was crazy because of the impact our paper had. We had little time for ourselves. Charpentier's words made Doudna smile, and she opened up even more. I enjoyed our friendship as much as doing the science, she said. I love your delightful manner. I always had this fantasy, ever since I studied French in school, of living in Paris. And Manu, you embodied that for me. The conversation ended with talk about working together again someday. Charpentier said she had a fellowship to do research in the U.S. Doudna had previously made plans, which COVID scuttled, to spend the spring 2021 semester on sabbatical at Columbia. They agreed that they should coordinate sabbaticals. Maybe in the spring of 2022 in New York, Doudna suggested. I would very much like that, to be there with you, Charpentier replied. We could collaborate again. Chapter 56. The Nobel Prize. Rewriting the Code of Life. Doudna was sound asleep when, at 2.53 a.m. on October 9, 2020, she was awakened by the persistent buzz of her cell phone, which she had put on vibrate mode. She was alone in a hotel room in Palo Alto, where she had gone to be part of a small meeting on the biology of aging, the first such in-person event she had attended in the seven months since the onset of the coronavirus crisis. The call was from a reporter for Nature. I hate to bother you so early, she said, but I wanted your comment on the Nobel. Who won? Doudna asked, sounding slightly irritated. You mean you haven't heard? The reporter said. You and Emmanuel Charpentier. 
Doudna looked at her phone and saw a bunch of missed calls that indeed seemed to have come from Stockholm. After pausing for a moment to absorb the news, she said, Let me call you back. The awarding of the 2020 Nobel Prize in Chemistry for Doudna and Charpentier was not a complete surprise, but the recognition came with historic swiftness. Their CRISPR discovery was merely eight years old. The day before, Sir Roger Penrose had shared the Nobel in physics for a discovery about black holes that he had made more than 50 years earlier. There was also a sense that this chemistry award was historic. More than just recognizing an achievement, it seemed to herald the advent of a new era. This year's prize is about rewriting the code of life, the Secretary General of the Royal Swedish Academy proclaimed in making the announcement. These genetic scissors have taken the life sciences into a new epoch. Also noteworthy was that the prize went only to two people, rather than the usual three. Given the ongoing patent dispute over who first discovered CRISPR as a gene-editing tool, the third slot could have gone to Feng Zhang, although that would have left out George Church, who published similar findings at the same time. In addition, there were many other worthy candidates, including Francisco Mojica, Rodolphe Barangu, Philippe Horvat, Eric Sondheimer, Luciano Marafini, and Virginius Schixnes. There was also the historic significance of the prize going to two women. One could sense a tight smile on the face of Rosalind Franklin's ghost. Although she made the images that helped James Watson and Francis Crick discover the structure of DNA, she became just a minor character in the early histories, and she died before they got their 1962 Nobel Prize. Even if she had lived, it is unlikely she would have displaced Maurice Wilkins as that year's third honoree. Until 2020, only five women, beginning with Marie Curie in 1911, had won a Nobel for chemistry out of 184 honorees. When Doudna called the Stockholm number that had been left on her voicemail, she got an answering machine. But after a few minutes, she was able to connect and officially receive the news. After taking a few more calls, including from Martin Yenick and the persistent reporter from Nature, she threw her clothes into her bag and jumped in her car for the hour-long drive back to Berkeley. On the way, she telephoned Jamie, who said that a communications team from the university was already setting up on their patio. When she arrived home at 4.30 a.m., she texted her neighbors to apologize for the commotion and camera lights. For a few minutes, she got a chance to celebrate the news over coffee with Jamie and Andy. Then she made a few remarks to the camera team on her patio before heading to Berkeley for a hastily assembled virtual global press conference. On the ride over, she spoke to her colleague Jillian Banfield, who in 2006 had called her out of the blue and asked her to meet at the Free Speech Movement Cafe on campus to discuss some clustered repeated sequences that she kept finding in the DNA of bacteria. I am so grateful to have you as a collaborator and friend, she told Banfield. It's been so much fun. Many of the questions at the press conference focused on how the awards represented a breakthrough for women. I'm proud of my gender, Doudna said with a big laugh. It's great, especially for younger women. 
For many women, there's a feeling that, whatever they do, their work may not be as recognized as it might be if they were a man. I would like to see that change, and this is a step in the right direction. Later, she reflected on her days as a schoolgirl. I was told more than a few times that girls don't do chemistry, or girls don't do science. Fortunately, I ignored that. As she spoke, Charpentier was holding her own press conference in Berlin, where it was mid-afternoon. I had reached her a few hours earlier, right after she got the official phone call from Stockholm, and she was unusually emotive. I had been told that this might someday come, she told me. But when I received the call, I became very moved, very emotional. It took her back, she said, to her early childhood and deciding, while walking past the Pasteur Institute in her native Paris, that she someday would be a scientist. But by the time of her press conference, her emotions were well hidden behind her Mona Lisa smile. Carrying a glass of white wine, she came into the lobby of her institute, posed next to a bust of its namesake, Max Planck, and then answered questions in a way that managed to be both lighthearted and earnest. As happened in Berkeley, most of the focus was on what the award meant for women. The fact that Jennifer and I were awarded this prize today can provide a very strong message for young girls, she said. It can show them that women can also be awarded prizes. That afternoon, their rival, Eric Lander, sent out a tweet from his perch at the Broad Institute. Huge congratulations to doctors Charpentier and Doudna on the At Nobel Prize for their contributions to the amazing science of CRISPR. It's exciting to see the endless frontiers of science continue to expand with big impacts for patients. In public, Doudna reacted graciously. I'm deeply grateful for the acknowledgement from Eric Lander, and it's an honor to receive his words, she said. Privately, she wondered whether his use of the word contributions was a lawyerly way to subtly minimize their Nobel-certified discoveries. More notable to me were his words about big impacts for patients in the future. It led me to hope that Jung and Church, and perhaps David Liu, will someday win the Nobel Prize for Medicine as a companion to the one that Doudna and Charpentier won for chemistry. Doudna mentioned at her press conference that she was waving across the ocean at Charpentier, but she badly wanted to actually talk to her. She texted Charpentier repeatedly throughout the day and left messages on her cell three times. Please, please call me, Doudna texted at one point. I won't take much of your time. I just want to say congratulations on the phone to you. Charpentier finally responded, I'm really, really exhausted, but I promise I'll call you tomorrow. So it wouldn't be until the next morning that they finally connected for a relaxed and rambling chat. After her press conference, Doudna went to her lab building for a champagne celebration, followed by a Zoom party where she was toasted by a hundred or so friends. Mark Zuckerberg and Priscilla Chan, whose foundation was funding some of her work, made a virtual appearance, as did Gillian Banfield and various Berkeley deans and officials. The nicest toast came from Jack Shostak, the Harvard professor who had turned her on to the wonders of RNA 
back when she was a graduate student. Shostak, who had won a Nobel in medicine in 2009, jointly with two women, raised a glass of champagne while sitting in the backyard of his stately brick Boston townhouse. The only thing better than winning a Nobel Prize, he said, is having one of your students win one. She and Jamie cooked Spanish omelets for dinner. Then Doudna joined her two sisters on a FaceTime call. They talked about how their late parents would have reacted. I really wish they could have been around, Doudna said. Mom would have been so emotional, and Dad would have pretended not to be. Instead, he would have made sure he understood the science, then asked me what I planned to do next. Transformations By honoring CRISPR, a virus-fighting system found in nature, in the midst of a virus pandemic, the Nobel Committee reminded us how curiosity-driven basic research can end up having very practical applications. CRISPR and COVID are speeding our entry into a life science era. Molecules are becoming the new microchips. At the height of the coronavirus crisis, Doudna was asked to write a piece for The Economist on the social transformations being wrought. Like many other aspects of life these days, science and its practice seem to be undergoing rapid and perhaps permanent changes, she wrote. This will be for the better. The public, she predicted, will have more understanding of biology and the scientific method. Elected officials will better appreciate the value of funding basic science and there will be enduring changes in how scientists collaborate, compete, and communicate. Before the pandemic, communication and collaboration between academic researchers had become constrained. Universities created large legal teams dedicated to staking a claim to each new discovery, no matter how small, and guarding against any sharing of information that might jeopardize a patent application. They've turned every interaction scientists have with each other into an intellectual property transaction, says Berkeley biologist Michael Eisen. Everything I get from or send to a colleague at another academic institution involves a complex legal agreement whose purpose is not to promote science, but to protect the university's ability to profit from hypothetical inventions that might arise from scientists doing what we're supposed to do, share our work with each other, the race to beat COVID was not run by those rules. Instead, led by Doudna and Zhang, most academic labs declared that their discoveries would be made available to anyone fighting the virus. This allowed greater collaboration between researchers and even between countries. The consortium that Doudna put together of labs in the Bay Area could not have coalesced so quickly if they had to worry about intellectual property arrangements. Likewise, scientists around the world contributed to an open database of coronavirus sequences that, by the end of August 2020, had 36,000 entries. The sense of urgency about COVID also brushed back the gatekeeper role played by expensive, peer-reviewed, paywall-protected scholarly journals such as Science and Nature. Instead of waiting months for the editors and reviewers to decide whether to publish a paper, Researchers at the height of the coronavirus crisis were posting more than a hundred papers a day on pre-print servers 
such as MedArchive and BioArchive, that were free and open and required a minimal review process. This allowed information to be shared in real time, freely, and even be dissected on social media. Despite the potential danger of spreading research that had not been fully vetted, the rapid and open dissemination worked well. It sped up the process of building on each new finding and allowed the public to follow the advance of science as it happened. On some important papers involving coronavirus, publication on the reprint servers led to crowdsourced vetting and wisdom from experts around the world. George Church said he had long wondered whether there would ever be a biological event that was catalytic enough to bring science into our daily lives. COVID is it, he says. Every now and then a meteor hits, and suddenly the mammals are in charge. Most of us someday will have detection devices in our home that will allow us to check for viruses and many other conditions. We will also have wearables with nanopores and molecular transistors that can monitor all of our biological functions, and they will be networked so that they can share information and create a global bioweather map showing in real time the spread of biological threats. All of this has made biology an even more exciting field of study. In August 2020, applications to medical school had jumped 17% from the previous year. The academic world will also change, and not just by the rise of more online classes. Instead of being ivory towers, universities will be engaged in tackling real-world problems, from pandemics to climate change. These projects will be cross-disciplinary, breaking down academic silos and the walls between labs, which have traditionally been independent fiefdoms that fiercely guard their autonomy. Fighting the coronavirus required collaboration across disciplines. In that way, it resembled the effort to develop CRISPR, which involved microbe hunters working with geneticists, structural biologists, biochemists, and computer geeks it also resembled the way things operate in innovative businesses where units work together to pursue a specific project or mission. The nature of the scientific threats we face will accelerate this trend toward project-oriented collaborations among disparate labs. One fundamental aspect of science will remain the same. It has always been a collaboration across generations, from Darwin and Mendel to Watson and Crick, to Doudna and Charpentier. At the end of the day, the discoveries are what endure, Charpentier says. We are just passing on this planet for a short time. We do our job, and then we leave and others pick up the work. All of the scientists I write about in this book say that their main motivation is not money or even glory, but the chance to unlock the mysteries of nature and use those discoveries to make the world a better place. I believe them. And I think that may be one of the most important legacies of the pandemic, reminding scientists of the nobility of their mission. So, too, might it imprint these values on a new generation of students who, as they contemplate their careers, may be more likely to pursue scientific research now that they have seen how exciting and important it can be. Epilogue 
Royal Street, New Orleans, Fall 2020. The great pandemic has temporarily receded and the earth is beginning to heal. I'm sitting on my balcony in the French Quarter and I can again hear music on the street and smell shrimp being boiled at the corner restaurant. But I know that more viral waves are likely to come, either from the current coronavirus or novel ones in the future. So we need more than just vaccines. Like bacteria, we need a system that can be easily adapted to destroy each new virus. CRISPR could provide that to us, as it does for bacteria. It could also someday be used to fix genetic problems, defeat cancers, enhance our children, and allow us to hack evolution so that we can steer the future of the human race. I began this journey thinking that biotechnology was the next great scientific revolution, a subject that was filled with awe-inspiring natural wonders, research rivalries, thrilling discoveries, life-saving triumphs, and creative pioneers such as Jennifer Doudna, Emmanuel Charpentier, and Fong Zhang. The year of the plague made me realize that I was understating the case. A few weeks ago, I found my old copy of James Watson's The Double Helix. Like Doudna, I got the book as a gift from my father when I was in school. It's a first edition with a pale red jacket, and it might be worth something today on eBay, except that my sophomoric pencil notes litter the margins, recording and defining words that were new to me, such as biochemistry. Reading the book made me, as it made Doudna, want to become a biochemist. Unlike her, I didn't. If I had to do it all over again, pay attention, you students listening to this, I would have focused far more on the life sciences, especially if I was coming of age in the 21st century. People of my generation became fascinated by personal computers and the web. We made sure our kids learned how to code. Now we'll have to make sure they understand the code of life. One way to do that is for all of us older kids to realize as the interwoven tales of CRISPR and COVID show, how useful it is to understand the way life works. It's good that some people have strong opinions about the use of GMOs in food, but it would be even better if more of them knew what a genetically modified organism is and what the yogurt makers discovered. It's good to have strong opinions about gene engineering in humans, but it's even better if you know what a gene is. Fathoming the wonders of life is more than merely useful. It's also inspiring and joyful. That's why we humans are lucky that we are endowed with curiosity. I am reminded of this by a baby lizard that is crawling around the curves of the wrought iron of my balcony and onto a vine, changing color slightly. I become curious. What causes the skin to change color? Also, why in heaven's name has this coronavirus plague been followed by such a profusion of lizards? I have to stop myself from conjuring up 
medieval explanations. I take a quick diversion online to slake my curiosity, and it's a pleasant experience. It reminds me of my favorite note that Leonardo da Vinci scribbled in the margin of one of his crammed notebook pages. Describe the tongue of the woodpecker. Who wakes up one morning and decides he needs to know what the tongue of a woodpecker looks like? The passionately and playfully curious Leonardo. That's who. Curiosity is the key trait of the people who have fascinated me. From Benjamin Franklin and Albert Einstein to Steve Jobs and Leonardo da Vinci. Curiosity drove James Watson and the Phage Group, who wanted to understand the viruses that attack bacteria, and the Spanish graduate student Francisco Mojica, who was intrigued by clustered, repeated sequences of DNA, and Jennifer Doudna, who wanted to understand what made the sleeping grass curl up when you touched it. And maybe that instinct, curiosity, pure curiosity, is what will save us. A year ago, after trips to Berkeley and various conferences, I sat on this balcony and tried to process my thoughts about gene editing. My worry then involved the diversity of our species. I'd return home in time for the funeral of the beloved grand dame of New Orleans, Leah Chase, who died at 96 after running a restaurant in the Treme neighborhood for almost seven decades. With her wooden spoon, she would stir the roux for her shrimp and sausage gumbo, one cup of peanut oil and eight tablespoons of flour, until it was the color of café au lait, and it could bind together the many diverse ingredients. A creole of color, her restaurant likewise bound together the diversity of New Orleans life, black and white and creole. The French Quarter was hopping that weekend. There was a naked bicycle race that was intended, oddly enough, to promote traffic safety. There were parades and second lines to celebrate the life of Miss Leah and also of Mac Rebenack, the funk musician known as Dr. John. There was the annual Gay Pride Parade and related block parties, and coexisting quite happily was a French market Creole tomato festival featuring truck farmers and cooks showing off the many varieties of succulent, non-genetically modified local tomatoes. From my balcony, I marveled at the diversity of the passing humanity. There were people short and tall, gay and straight and trans, fat and skinny, light and dark and café au lait. I saw a cluster wearing Gallaudet University t-shirts excitedly using sign language. The supposed promise of CRISPR is that we may someday be able to pick which of these traits we want in our children and in all of our descendants. We could choose for them to be tall and muscular and blonde and blue-eyed and not deaf and not... Well, pick your preferences. As I surveyed the scene with all of its natural variety, I pondered how this promise of CRISPR might also be its peril. It took nature millions of years to weave together three billion base pairs of DNA in a complex and occasionally imperfect way to permit all of the wondrous diversity within our species. 
Are we right to think we can now come along and edit that genome to eliminate what we see as imperfections? Will we lose our diversity, our humility, and empathy? Will we become less flavorful, like our tomatoes? On Mardi Gras 2020, marchers in the St. Anne Parade strutted past our balcony, a few of them dressed as the coronavirus with bodysuits that mimicked a corona beer bottle and hoods that made them look like viral rockets. A few weeks later, a shutdown order came. Doreen Ketchens, the beloved clarinetist who plays with her band in front of our corner grocery, gave a farewell-for-now performance to a near-empty sidewalk. She sang a final rendition of When the Saints Go Marching In, stressing the final verse about When the Sun Begins to Shine. The mood now is different than it was last year, as are my thoughts on CRISPR. Like our species, my thinking evolves and adapts with changing situations. I now see the promise of CRISPR more clearly than the peril. If we are wise in how we use it, biotechnology can make us more able to fend off viruses, overcome genetic defects, and protect our bodies and minds. All creatures, large and small, use whatever tricks they can to survive. And so should we. It's natural. Bacteria came up with a pretty clever virus-fighting technique, but it took them trillions of life cycles to do so. We can't wait that long. We'll have to combine our curiosity with our inventiveness to speed up the process. After millions of centuries, during which the evolution of organisms happened naturally, we humans now have the ability to hack the code of life and engineer our own genetic future. Or, to flummox those who would label gene editing as unnatural and playing God, let's put it another way. Nature and nature's God, in their infinite wisdom, have evolved a species that is able to modify its own genome. And that species happens to be ours. Like any evolutionary trait, this new ability may help the species thrive and perhaps even produce successor species. Or it may not. It could be one of those evolutionary traits that, as sometimes happens, leads a species down a path that endangers its survival. Evolution is fickle that way. That's why it works best as a slow process. Every now and then, a rogue or rebel, Herjean Key, Josiah Zayner, will prod us to go faster. But if we are wise, we can pause and decide to proceed with more caution. Slopes are less slippery that way. To guide us, we'll need not only scientists, but humanists. And most important, we'll need people who feel comfortable in both worlds, like Jennifer Doudna. That is why it's useful, I think, for all of us to try to understand this new room that we're about to enter, one that seems mysterious, but is rich with hope. Not everything needs to be decided right away. We can begin by asking what type of world we want to leave for our children. 
then we can feel our way together, step by step, preferably hand in hand. The Codebreaker. Jennifer Doudna, Gene Editing, and the Future of the Human Race. Was written by Walter Isaacson and read by Kata Mazur and Walter Isaacson. Editing, mix, and post-production by Frog Pond Productions. The associate producer was Tiffany Ferrari. The Codebreaker. Jennifer Doudna, Gene Editing, and the Future of the Human Race was produced and directed by Tara Thomas. This has been a presentation of Simon & Schuster Audio. The Codebreaker is available in print from Simon & Schuster. Also from Simon & Schuster Audio, Leonardo da Vinci, written by Walter Isaacson and read by Alfred Molina. Audible hopes you've enjoyed this program.